Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. If you would open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 15. John chapter 18. And we begin reading in verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a fire of coals, stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And then if you would skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, Therefore, they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Didn't they not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Spirit of God, as we come to this text of scripture to this section of the Gospel of John, we come with a need. You, Holy Spirit, are the, are the very person who inspired the Apostle John to write the words that we just read. Every word, every choice directed by your hand. And we put our confidence that this is the very word that you intended him to speak. This is the very word of God breathed out, inspired, and it is profitable. It is necessary for us. We can't afford just to come to church and check the box. We have to come here expectant that we're hearing from the creator of the universe. And so as we come to you this morning, we come needy, we come with our palms turned up saying, Dear Lord, we are empty, but would you fill us with your word this morning? And I pray that as I communicate the truth, that I would do it with accuracy, with passion and conviction, but, but, but Spirit, it is your job to convince people of truth, of your truth. And so Spirit, be our teacher and be our guide this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Greek word which is translated here in our Bibles as a fire of coals, if you look at verse 18, that is one Greek word translated here, a fire of coals. That Greek word occurs exactly two times in the Greek New Testament. The first of them is right here in John chapter 18. A number of events have led to the point where the Apostle Peter is standing in the high priest's courtyard warning himself around a fire of coals. 
when we understand this scene, we have to understand what has brought Peter to this moment, to this place, to this charcoal fire. Peter had first encountered our Lord at the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. This scene is occurring in the southern part of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. But that's not where Peter encountered Jesus for the first time. He encountered Jesus as he was going about his business as a fisherman. If you read the accounts, you can read this, for instance, in Matthew chapter 4 or in Luke chapter 5. We see that Peter was in partnership with the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And if you read that account carefully, you find out that there were multiple boats. There were multiple nets. In fact, as those disciples leave fishing to go and follow Jesus, we're told that they leave the nets and the boats in the hands of the servants. This was not just a, a sort of subsistence fisher, uh, fisherman, Peter. He was part of a fishing enterprise. Uh, in fact, if you look here in the text that we just read, Peter comes to the high priest's courtyard with one of the other disciples, someone that we will begin to understand is the Apostle John. And did you notice with me in verse 15 that the Apostle John, we're told, was known to the high priest. And then that's repeated for us again, that this disciple, John, was known to the high priest. How was it that John, a fisherman from Galilee, was someone whose name was recognized at the high priest's house? That would be like uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, recognizing you by name. If I show up at the Supreme Court and I say, hey, would you go tell Chief, Chief Roberts that, uh, that Nathan Messler is here? What is he going to say? Nathan who? Never heard of the guy. But John, a fisherman from the north, shows up at the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas, and he says, hey, just, I'm John Zebedee. Oh, John Zebedee? Oh, come, on, come, come right on in. How is it that John is known by name at the high priest's house. They hadn't met. Caiaphas was from Jerusalem. He rarely traveled to crummy places like the Sea of Galilee. It's because John and James, the sons of Zebedee, and Simon Peter, who was in partnership with them, were part of a significant fishing enterprise. This was actually a, a well-known name. In other words, here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus showed up at the Sea of Galilee, when he first encountered Peter, and he said to Peter, hey, why don't you stop fishing and follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men, he wasn't just taking his hobby away from him. Now, I know some of you in this audience love to fish as a hobby. I am not in your tribe. I respect you. I'm glad you get some joy out of that. I don't understand you. Uh, you would not have to do much to induce me to give up fishing. If you just said, hey, you can stop fishing. Okay, good, I'm in. I don't have to fish. Give me a, a good book and a cup of coffee and promise me I don't have to fish and I'm good. But Peter wasn't walking away from his hobby. Peter wasn't just a subsistence fisherman trying to eke out an existence and he just found a better deal. 
When Peter, James, and John left their fishing, they were leaving the family business. They were leaving a corporation that they were going to inherit. And in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that they forsook all. They were walking away from big bucks. They were walking away from what really was their responsibility as sons within that society. Your job was to be apprenticed in your father's business and then to assume that business when you were able to, or when your father passed away or moved on. In other words, in, in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 5, at that first time when Peter called, was called by Jesus to leave his fishing business and he forsook all, at that point Peter had already given up more for the sake of following Christ than most Christians ever will. And Peter has some good moments, doesn't he? Peter has some good moments. In John chapter 7, this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, Peter's made the decision to follow Jesus, and it's looking like that was a good decision. It's like, you know, I bought the stock low, but the stock price is soaring. I mean, look at the crowds that are swarming around Jesus. Surely this man is the Messiah. And at the feeding of the 5,000, you know that was just 5,000 men, right? They didn't count the women and children. That was probably the feeding of 20,000. It looks like Peter's made a good decision to give up the family fishing business because he's hitched his car to the Messiah train, and this looks like it's going to succeed. It's going to chug its way down to Jerusalem. They're going to get to Jerusalem. They're going to kick out the Romans. And he is the leader of Jesus' disciples. He's going to be like VP. Man, this looks good. And when there's 20,000 people clamoring for Jesus' attention beside the Sea of Galilee, things are looking good. But the next day, the day after the feeding of the 5,000, a crowd comes to try to forcibly meet Jesus the King. Do you remember this? You can read this in John chapter 6 and 7. And Jesus refuses, and he begins to teach them spiritual truth. My friends, Jesus didn't show up to fill Israel's bellies. He showed up because Israel needed a spiritual transformation. They needed their hearts changed. And when Jesus preached to that crowd that they needed to accept him as the bread of heaven, that they needed an internal and spiritual transformation, you can read it for yourself at the end of John chapter 7. The crowd says, this is a hard saying, who can receive it? And they begin to melt away. And John tells us even many of the disciples stopped following Jesus that day. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, what about you? Are you going to go with the crowd? Are you going to go with the other disciples? And I'm proud of Peter at this moment. He says to Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of life. Peter has some good moments, doesn't he? He forsook all that he had, followed the Lord. At that moment of crisis when it would have been easy just to say, maybe I made a bad deal, maybe I can still get back to the fishing business. He says, no, Lord, we can't leave you. You have the words of life. It was not many days after that that, that Jesus and his disciples were gathered in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And they said, well, so the crowd says, you're Elijah, or maybe one of the other prophets, or John the Baptist. And then he says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, another moment for Peter, he speaks up and he says, we know that you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. Well done, Peter. Well done. But he, Peter had his other moments too, didn't he? I'm writing a book, it's called Adventures and Missing the Point, The Life and Times of the Disciples. I really am writing the book, it'll be out in time for your great-grandchildren <laughs> for Christmas. And uh, Peter's got a couple of chapters <laughs> in that book, right? Peter had his struggles, didn't he, didn't he have some sin struggles? I don't know exactly what the underlying root sin is of the disease that Peter suffered from, but he suffered from the open mouth, insert foot disease, did he? I mean, right after that moment when he declares, we know who you are, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. Right after that great moment, Jesus begins to teach his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die, and Peter opens his mouth and, wham, inserts his foot, right? And he said, he re by the way, this is your sign that you're doing something wrong. When you're rebuking Jesus, that's your sign. Something's off. And he rebuked Jesus and said, you can't say that. You can't talk about that. Uh, Lord, we did a focus group. We did some dial testing with the uh, suffering, dying Messiah message. And people don't like it. It doesn't pull well in Peoria. You cannot talk about that. And so he rebukes, he actually rebukes Jesus for, for talking about this suffering Messiah. He has his moments of failure, doesn't he? How about at the Last Supper, which is just this very evening, just hours before the scene that we're looking at here in John chapter 18, Jesus, at that Last Supper, takes, takes off his outer garment, takes up a towel, and finds a basin. Because here they are sitting at a meal, and one of the basic courtesies has not been taken care of. As they reclined at meal, feet had not been washed. And it was the job of the lowliest servant, but everyone else thought they were, they were too big and too important. Certainly the leader of the disciples. You know, the VP in the New Kingdom. Certainly it's not my job to wash feet. And Peter was not alone in those kind of thoughts. And so no one washed feet, and then Jesus, the creator of the universe, gets up and takes the basin and, and holds the filthy feet of the disciples in his hands and washes their feet. And when, you know what happens, right? Peter gets to Peter's feet and, and, and he says, Lord, you will wash none of me. Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have anything to do with me. Next verse, okay, Lord, wash all of me. That's one, those, those phrases out of Peter's mouth are, are one verse away from each other. Don't wash any of me. Okay, Lord, wash all of me. Yeah, there were some sin problems in Peter's life. There was, there was some hubris. There was some arrogance. There was, there was a lack of awareness of, of where he was spiritually, of some of his own weaknesses. And the Lord himself lays this bear to Peter and says, Peter, this very night you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, it just, I could never do that. It is not in me to deny you, Lord. 
Except it was, wasn't it? It was. Peter, I, I still think we see some moments of courage here in this, this evening. Peter does use his sword. It's brash and rash, but he uses his sword to try to defend the Lord. I mean, even this scene right here where Simon Peter followed Jesus and one of the other disciples, and they're sneaking their way into Caiaphas' courtyard, that takes a certain amount of courage to do that. Not many, not many people being tried for political insurrection died alone on crosses. This is risky. So there's some courage here as, as John and Peter sneak into Caiaphas' courtyard going incognito mode, hoping not to be spotted, because if they're spotted, the outcome that's going to happen to Jesus is likely going to happen to them. And so there's some courage. I mean, it's not like there's no risk here at this moment in verse 17 when one of the young ladies turns and says, Hey, aren't you... I thought I saw you with him. Oh, no. Not me. And then another time. No. Not me. And then one last time. Right? No. Not me. I want us to stop and pause the story for a moment. Because we can read these verses, the verses that I read to start off our sermon this morning, and we can miss what's really going on here. This, this is a moment, I'm going to use a term, and I want to put some guardrails up, but I want to I use a term here. As we're reading these verses here in John chapter 18, we're reading an account of spiritual trauma. You know, it's true that all sin is sin and the effect that it has on our, on our eternal destiny. It's not like there are big sinners who really go to hell and there are little sinners who sort of go to hell. All sin is sin in the sense that all sin separates you from God. And, and, and Peter, as we already seen, had those, those sin proclivities, those, sin, those things that he struggled with on a daily basis. But my friends, this was more than that. This was more than the occasional talking out of turn or the occasional moment of hubris. This was a moment of sin that traumatized Peter's soul. I want to be careful with the term trauma because I do think we live in a society and a culture where you get some street cred if you can point to abuse and to trauma in your life. And so there are some people, we're seeing it in this dumb trial that's been running for six weeks, you know, there's street cred, if I can have you recognize me as also part of hashtag me too, right? There's some street cred and people claim trauma and claim abuse where it probably shouldn't be claimed. But let's get real. We live in a fallen and broken world where people are traumatized by sin. Let me tell you something about sin. Sin traumatizes the human soul. The human soul was made for God. Unique among all of God's creation is the human person who's made in the image of God. What does that mean? It's made, it means that we are made to uniquely interface with the creator of the universe. 
That's how God made us. He made us to live in a world where we are living with Him, walking with Him, enjoying His presence, a world free from sin, a world free from death, a world free from sorrow, a world free from pain. That's the world that God created the human soul to live in. But my friends, that's not the world that we live in. Have the events of this week reminded us that's not the kind of world that we live in? Sin traumatizes the human soul. This isn't just a moment of, um, shucks. I want you to think about this for just a moment from Peter's perspective. He started following the Lord. He's made a considered act of consecration to leave the family fishing business behind to follow Jesus. He's taken at sometimes bold stands for Jesus. And at times it looks like, man, what a great choice. I, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. This is going to work out great for me. And he just couldn't anticipate a Messiah who was arrested, tried, and then crucified. Imagine the weight that this moment in John 18 would have on Peter's soul as he watched the events of the next day. I mean, a mere 12 hours from this moment in John chapter 18, this person that he spent the last three and a half years with is going to be hanging on a cross. I know sometimes in our world we have sort of a stylized picture of what the Christ and the cross looked like. But man, if you saw someone hanging on a cross, that was not an image that you would soon forget. And it wasn't, they didn't set those crosses, by the way, those, those Roman crosses were not set, set up high on a hill far away. They put those crosses right along the roadside where they were right up in your face. I mean, people, you, can, you know this by reading the crucifixion account. People were so close to the face of Jesus they could spit in his face. Crucifixion was on purpose up close and personal and wicked and horrible and terrible so that the Romans could put you on notice you don't rebel against us because that'll happen to you. And it's one thing when it's some distant person that you don't know, but it, when, it, when it's someone that you have lived with for three and a half years and who's on the cross and your last interaction with him was denying that you even knew him. Imagine the weight and the trauma that that would have brought to Peter's soul. And then Sunday comes. Sunday comes, and Jesus died on the cross, and, and now the tomb is empty. And when Peter and John hear that news, they sprint down to the empty tomb, and, and lo and behold, Mary's right. That tomb is absolutely empty. Maybe someone stole the body, but they would very quickly find out. In fact, Peter himself would very quickly find out that Jesus had actually risen back from the grave. What a moment of triumph for the disciples of Jesus. Unless you're Peter, who had just denied Jesus three times. What should have been one of the greatest moments 
in Peter's life, the day that he realized that Jesus had died on the cross, had come back to life, that everything that he had taught had been true, that what, that what Peter had proclaimed in Caesarea Philippi, that indeed this was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that all of that was true. And yet at the moment of trusting, Peter had failed him. What's going to happen now? This enterprise of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior. Oh, I thought it was good before, but I never anticipated that what would happen through Jesus Christ is not just that the Romans would be kicked out of Jerusalem and a, and a Jewish king would be reinstated, but that Jesus was going to change the relationship of every fallen sinner with the creator of the universe, that the gospel would go forward, that could change people's eternal destinies. There was going to be this great enterprise surrounding the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but Peter was going to watch it from the sidelines. Because at the moment of testing... He had denied even knowing Jesus. In fact, that's what we see happening. Peter, who had seen the Lord resurrected, has retreated back to Galilee. Would you turn with me now to John chapter 21? John chapter 21. Simon Peter, verse 3, said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and immediately uh, got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, if the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in, the net in, because of the multitude of the fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord who put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. And the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, about 100 yards, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw, you see it in verse 9, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Peter went and dragged the, the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net had not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What do we see in this scene? Peter having retreated back to the north into Galilee, moved himself off the enterprise that God had him to be part of. He's put himself on the sideline. That failure around the first charcoal fire weighing his soul down 
But what does Jesus do? I want you to go down to verse 9 and just pay attention. What does Jesus do? Jesus travels north up to, to, to Galilee. While they're out on the Sea of Galilee trying to catch fish and having no success, Jesus builds a charcoal fire. I want you to notice something about that act of building a charcoal fire. Charcoal is not something you just find washed up on the beach. It's not like you just went down to the beach and found some driftwood. Charcoal is a fuel that's specially prepared for cooking and for warmth. And so for Jesus to have a charcoal fire on this morning by the Sea of Galilee, he would have had to have purposely and intentionally brought it with him. I want to ask you a question. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus intentionally bring charcoal fire? Well, there's a very obvious answer here. He wants to do some cooking. And charcoal fire happens to be a useful way to do some cooking. But I wonder if there's not a deeper purpose. I wonder if God, in the person of Jesus Christ, does not have another intention. Because what does Jesus do around this charcoal fire? He doesn't just cook a meal. But after the disciples have eaten, they go away, and it's Jesus and Peter sitting there. And what happens from verse 15 down through verse 19? I want you to see something here about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't think this is happenstance. I don't think it's by mistake. That word for a coal fire, a charcoal fire, occurs only twice. The first time it occurs is there in chapter 18. And what happens around that charcoal fire? Three times around the charcoal fire, Peter's soul is traumatized by his sin and by his failure. Because that's what sin does. Sin traumatizes our soul. Whether it's my sin, as it was there for, for Peter in John 18, it was, the, it was the sin that he had inflicted upon himself, but someone else's sin against me also has the effect of traumatizing my soul. There is anyone who's gotten through life without experiencing the trauma that sin brings, whether it's my sin or someone else's sin, or if you've noticed when someone else sins against you, your response is, is hardly ever just a perfect, you know, Christ-filled Holy Spirit response. There's usually a mixture of someone else's sin and my sin, and it's just a mess. And so in chapter 18, the first time by the charcoal fire, Peter's soul was traumatized by sin. But I want you to notice what Jesus does, my friends. Jesus brings Peter back to a charcoal fire. In December of 2020, my grandfather passed away. My grandpa was in his 90s. He was a World War II vet who dive bombers in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Great man, great stories. Most of them not true, but they were great stories. I love going to grandpa's house. Rachel and I would go to grandpa's house and there were smells in grandpa's house we didn't have in our house. One of them was this big pot of pipe tobacco that sat next to his recliner. 
This may surprise you, but we didn't have that in our house growing up. But Grandpa had this, this pot, this crock of Prince Albert uh, pipe tobacco. And when Roman Results was in the room, I didn't smoke a pipe, <laughs> but I loved to lift the lid off of that tobacco and smell it. It smelled amazing. I thought it just smelled great. And you know what made it smell really good? Is it smelled like my grandpa. That was the smell that I associated with my grandpa. And I, it was probably a couple years ago or so, I was walking through Fry's supermarket right down here, and I walked past someone. I don't know if it was their cologne. I don't know what it was. But that same smell, I don't know if they smoked. I don't know what it was. But I walked by someone in fries, an older gentleman in fries, and that smell hit my nostrils. And do you know where I was? I wasn't in fries anymore, was I? I was right back in Grandpa's recliner. We know this, don't we, that that smell is one of the senses that, in fact, it's the sense that's most uh, intricately tied to memory. And even though it had been years since I had sat in that recliner and smelled that pipe tobacco, as soon as I smelled it, I was right back. I was an eight-year-old kid lifting the lid off that crock of tobacco, smelling it. And I was right back in my grandpa's recliner. What do you think was happening to Peter? excitement of the day, we caught 153 fish. Pastor Jeff and I were talking about this passage, and there's lots of debate in the commentaries why that number, why that specific number, Pastor Jeff had the best answer. These were fishermen. Of course they were going to tell you how many fish they caught. The real number was 148, okay? <laughs> we added a few. The excitement of the morning. Not catching fish, and then Jesus saying, throw down the other side, and they have more fish than they can count. Well, they counted them, because they were fishermen. They were going to tell you how many fish they caught. The excitement in the morning, and it's the Lord, he swims to the beach. They have the lunch, but then the other disciples walk away, and it's just Peter and Jesus. Can you picture the scene? Jesus stoking the charcoal fire. That, that, that smell of that acrid smoke filling Peter's nostrils. Where was Peter? Where was Peter? Was he at the side of the Sea of Galilee? Was he in Caiaphas' courtyard? And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I didn't call you from the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4 so that you would fish for fish. That's why you've been up all night and you're not getting anything in your nets. I didn't work in your life so that you could catch fish for a living. I called you so that you would be fishers of men. 
Our plans are so that you would lead this enterprise, not sit on the sidelines. And I know you think that what happened at the first charcoal fire has disqualified you and you're going to go back to the family business. But I've got news for you. While I was being tried for my life at that charcoal fire, I have conquered death. I've conquered sin. And my friends, I'm so glad that God calls Peter back to a second charcoal fire. And what does he do at that charcoal fire? He says, Peter... I'm going to restore you so that you can go on and so that you can serve me. Peter, do you love me because I've got a job for you to do? I need you to go out there and feed and care and lead my sheep. I need you back on the team. I love this. This is so intentional on Jesus' part. My friends, please hear me clearly. The pathway forward through the mistakes and the failures of the past is not to ignore that they happened. That's how our world deals with this stuff. It's true, we live in a fallen world. Our hearts have all been traumatized by sin. Very often the sin of our own commission. Sometimes the sin that's been committed against us. Most often it's a combination of both. And what our world says about those kind of things is, it's just ignored. If you're feeling guilt, if you're feeling shame, you shouldn't feel guilt, you shouldn't feel shame. I got news for you. There are some things that are worth feeling guilty about. There are some things that are worth feeling shame about. That that was a shameful thing that, that, that Peter did in, the, in the, the high priest's courtyard. That was shameful. He should feel guilty about that. So our Lord doesn't ignore the charcoal fire. He brings him back to the charcoal fire. He brings him back to the moment of failure. This isn't ignoring sin like our Lord wants to do. You know, like a loving physician, Jesus doesn't ignore the cancer. He says, no, you've got the cancer, but I've got the news for you. There is a cure for this. This is what the world doesn't have. The world just says, pretend like sin and guilt and shame don't exist, except people who have been traumatized by sin know that it does exist. They live with the guilt. They live with the shame. They know that they've done wrong. Our world says, just ignore the first charcoal fire. That's not what God does. God calls us back to the charcoal fire. He says, yes, you failed. Peter, you failed. But that is not the end of the story. I've got something that I want you to do for me. It's a comma. It's not a period, Peter. My friends, Satan gets us stuck at the first charcoal fire. He wants us stuck at the moment when our hearts were traumatized by sin. And I know I'm preaching to people that you've experienced trauma, sometimes not of your own doing, but someone else's sin. And sometimes those things, we just get stuck at that moment, like Peter did. He was stuck right there, and he's going to take himself out of doing what God wants him to do. That is not the answer. That's what Satan wants for us. He wants us to live in the guilt and the regret and the shame of the past. And the world's answer is no better. It's not to ignore the sin and the guilt and the shame of the past. It's to come to that place of failure. Guilt and shame, that moment of trauma to our souls. And to walk through it with the creator of the universe. To walk through it with the one who died on the cross 
who defeated sin, death, and Satan, to walk through it with the person who has come into this world as the great physician who will make all things new again. That world that God created us for, my friends, Jesus is in the process of restoring that world back to us again. The day is coming when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to come cascading out of heaven, and he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. He's going to put away all of the wickedness that is in this world. And it says in the last chapter of the book, I've read it, right? I've read the last chapter. We know what happens in that last chapter. God makes all things new again. And when you walk through the trauma that sin has brought to your life with the one who has defeated sin, death, and Satan, he restores you so that you can serve him. My friends, I know I'm talking to a room full of people who have felt the trauma of sin. Why is there death? Why is there sickness? Why do people do the things that they do to each other? Why do we say the things that we say? Why do we act the way that we act? It's because we live in a fallen and broken world. We're sinners. And the pathway forward isn't to, to, to ignore that fact. It's to come to the great physician who can make all things new again. My friend, I am glad that there are two charcoal fires in the book of John. I'm going to say that again because I thought that would get an amen. My friends, I am glad that as someone who has been traumatized by sin, by my own sin, other people's sin, and the concoction of them both, I'm glad that the failures of the past are not all that God has written for me. I'm glad that there are more than one charcoal fire in the book of John. I'm glad that there's two of them. I'm glad that God brings us back to the place of failure and says, I'm going to put you back together again. Your soul has been traumatized by sin, but I'm going to set you free to serve me. Because if you're here today and you can follow the mirror, God's got something he wants you to do for him. And you've got to go back if you're stuck at the first charcoal fire. Walk through that with Jesus. Deal with the sin. Deal with its effects. And then go on and serve the Lord. At the first charcoal fire, three times, a, sin traumatized, a soul traumatized by sin. But at the second charcoal fire, three times, a soul set free to serve. And boy, Woody... <laughs> Holy man, would he. The guy who denied Jesus three times in Caiaphas' courtyard would stand on the portico of the temple with the crowds gathered around and he would preach, This Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, he is risen again. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the King of kings. And there is no salvation found in any other name but his. And you must bow to him. And Peter would become the powerful preacher of Pentecost. But only because Jesus called him back to a charcoal fire. Would you bow your heads?